The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I figured out this week that I have exactly enough time before my sabbatical in July to finish through the, the book of 1 Peter. So I'm excited uh, to continue to study this uh, before I go on my sabbatical. Uh, we have a lot of people out traveling today. The good news is you were able to find a parking space this morning pretty easily. So praise God for that. I want to take a moment. I know we have several people who are out and they are watching online. And so I just want to say a, a special welcome to our real life family who are watching us all over the country today. Uh, we're just uh, grateful that you're able to tune in uh, via Facebook this morning. Well, something shocking happened this week. You ready? This is going to blow your mind. Republicans and Democrats agreed on something, like wholeheartedly. The Washington Post reported that on Wednesday in Washington, that uses facial recognition software because they believe that this technology poses a threat to Americans' privacy and even civil rights. Now, it is creepy to think about the technology that is out there and, and how much we are probably being watched and monitored, is it not? I was thinking through this and, and thinking how often that my wife and I will be having a private conversation in our home about a product or service that we might be interested in. And yet, we'll get on Facebook a few minutes later and see an advertisement for that product or service. Coincidence? I think not. It's kind of, kind of creepy, is it not? It's strange to feel like you're being watched all of the time, being monitored all of the time. We're on this... where the Apostle Peter is letting us know, hear me, even without video surveillance technology, that friends, people are watching us. We are being watched, watched as men and women of Christ. People are watching us. They are listening to us. So in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we find these kind of key verses of this section that set up this entire theme that we're in. He says this in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, misfits, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he's saying, hey, don't walk in sin. And then he says, keep your conduct, verse 12, among the Gentiles or the world." They may see your good deeds. People are watching you. And they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen, people are hungry for truth. They're hungry to see whether or not this faith that you profess is genuine. If it truly makes a difference in your life, no pressure, right? The only Jesus people may see 
It's the Jesus that you represent by the way you believe and behave. And unfortunately, we don't always do a great job at representing Christ well, do we? Here's the main thought today. The Bible calls us as Christians to keep an exemplary testimony in this world so that we might point lost people to Jesus. That's the goal. We want others. Calling us to have three things. The right attitudes, the right answers, and the right aim in life. All right? So if you would, as is custom in our church, would you stand quickly just in honor of the reading of the Word of God. You know what? I may need a new battery. Yeah, I'll use that. Thanks. 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 8. Finally, so he's summing this section up. All of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord and you may be seated. So through this text, very quickly, if you'll take me out of the monitors, sound people wherever you are, that would be helpful. I want to point out three ways in which we can glorify God and point other people to Christ. Three ways in which we can glorify God and point other people to Christ. Number one is this. We have got to have the right attitude, particularly towards other believers. Listen, if we cannot get along amongst ourselves, how in the world are we going to love our enemies? For the last several weeks, we've seen how we can glorify God through this act of, this word has almost become a cuss word in our culture today, but this act of humble submission. All right, this is not popular today in, in the secular world, submitting to other people, Right? We learn from the scriptures that we are to submit to and honor those leaders who are part of our city, state, and our federal government. And we learn that we are to submit to and honor our Christian employers, or I'm sorry, our employers. As Christians, we are to honor our employers, even the unjust ones. And then the last two messages of this series, we were reminded of how a Christian husband and a Christian wife are submit to submit in different ways one to another. And now we move to this section where Peter reminds us of how we are to relate to each other, other Christians, other believers. I hear this very clearly, very well. Listen, one of the greatest external evidences 
that someone is a real follower of Jesus is that person's attitude and behaviors towards other believers. What should our attitude be towards other Christians? Well, let's look at verse 8. All of you have unity of mind. He says all of you, he's talking to Christians, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So let's just walk through these very quickly. Number one, towards each other, we are to be unified. We're to have unity. The Bible calls us to unity not uniformity. There is a difference. We have different preferences, different likes, different dislikes. Like I'm a Mac guy, right? I'm an Apple guy. I don't understand you PC people, but we can still worship together, right? Like some of us like sports. Others don't care for that. Some like hunting. Some like fishing. We have different preferences. Some like, uh, you know, in church. Some of us uh, like it at 65 degrees and freezing cold in here. Come on, somebody. Other people would like it 90 degrees in here. The preacher wins in this argument, all right? We keep it really chill in here. Um, So we have different preferences. We, We have different likes and styles of music. And I so appreciate our praise band for singing a diverse selection of music we try to do some uh, a lot of contemporary but we always try to do a traditional hymn because we want to we want to bless everyone in here as much as possible and we can still with all these different preferences we can keep those unique ideas and dreams and preferences and all of these things that make us different yet still have unity here's the point that Peter's making it's what the whole bible is making this when it talks about unity. It means that we are striving towards one goal. We're kind of locked arm in arm. We have one purpose. And friends, look at me. Here's what's unite here's what unites us. Here it is. It is the truth of the word of God. It is the word of God that unites us, not our preferences. It's the word of truth. We are to be harmonious because we're all led by the truth of God's word. I hope that is the case at least. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Think about your last, your behavior, your attitude this last week. Has it been worthy of the gospel of Christ? And then he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Did you catch that? That's what we're to do, striving side by side for the gospel. So though we are a diverse people, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here's the goal. That we treasure Jesus Christ above all things. And we strive together then for the sake of the gospel. I think that's just a beautiful picture. When we have multiple generations, multiple races, people with different preferences coming together arm in arm, locking arms together and saying, Hey, we're about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what he means here by unity. 
Secondly, we're to display sympathy towards one another. We're to be sympathetic. The Greek word here is sympathes. And here's what it means. It means to have a fellow feeling. That's what it means to be sympathetic. To have a fellow feeling. And here's the implication. Not only are we united in truth, but watch this. In a sense, we are united as Christians emotionally as well. You could say it this way, that we feel each other's hurts and we feel each other's joys. That means if you get a promotion at work, I'm excited because I'm connected with you in that sense. If, if you're hurting, if you have a loss in your life, it's as if I had a loss in my own life. When you hurt, I hurt. When you rejoice, I rejoice. That's how it's supposed to be. Paul says it like this in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. But this is so counter-cultural in the Western world. You hear me talk about this all the time, but how many know that our Western world is very individualistic? I love walking around our neighborhood but growing up, when I would walk our block, like I would, it would take me two hours to walk, you know, because there was, everybody was like out on the front porch and we'd stop and we'd have conversations. And now it's like a ghost town in the front yard, right? I mean, when you're walking the street. It's interesting because everybody's out on their back deck or still at work, you know, till eight or nine at night. And it just speaks to the way our culture has become. We don't want to do life together. We want, listen, we'll be cordial, we'll be kind, but I'll live my life, you live your life. Leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. That's the culture in which we now live. But that's not the way God means for us as a church to live. Friends, we are called to community. We use that word in our church name, real life community church, very intentionally. We believe in community in this church. This is not a church uh, that, that you can just come in and you just can kind of sit down and, and not get involved. Listen, we, we want to get to know you. We want to help you in your spiritual journey. And we want to invest in you in every way possible. We want to know when you're hurting so that we can be a comfort to you. We want to know, know when you rejoice so that we can celebrate with you. That is the community in which the Bible calls us to. So real followers of Jesus, bottom line, share in the sorrows and the joys of fellow believers. Number three, we see this virtue that we're to have one towards, another, uh, towards one another. That is the virtue of brotherly love. And we've talked about this in previous messages, so I'll just briefly mention it. One of the big celebrations in the Bible is that as Christians... Not only do we get new life in Christ, that's glorious, but friends, we become part of a new family, namely the family of God. Literally all around the world right now, we have family members who are also part of this family of God, and they are worshiping our same God together with us. Is that not incredible to think about? And we need to treat each other as a family should treat other family members, right? And I have to say should treat because I was going to just say, hey, you should 
treat your brothers and sisters in Christ like you treat your own brother or sister. And then I thought, well, some of you aren't nice to your real brothers and sisters, so don't do that. Treat your brothers or sisters in Christ how you should treat a real brother or sister. Amen? So I have, a, I have a huge issue with people, you know this, who say, let me, yeah, let me not stop the sentence there. I have a huge issue with people, all right? I have a huge people with, a issue with people who uh, say that, well, I love God, but I'm not into church. I, I don't have a, my, my mind can't wrap around that thought. I can't, I just can't. I don't have the capacity to under, understand that. Like, I hear this all the time as a pastor. Oh, what do you do? They'll ask me, and I say, well, I'm a pastor. Well, I love God, and I pray, but I'm just not into, they call it organized religion, right? And I understand that people have been hurt by church. I understand this. Like, who hasn't? Matter of fact, let me just ask, anybody who's been in church 10 years or longer, if you have not been hurt or offended at some point by somebody in the church, raise your hand. If you've been at church 10 years or longer, Okay, one of you. See me after service, Melvin. <laughs> Hurts happen. I have been hurt over and over and over, but you'll never be able to keep me away from this place. Why? Because you cannot separate a love for God and a love for his family. You can't do it. A love for God's people. Watch this. It is the acid test of, your, of the genuineness of your faith. Jesus said it like this. John 13, 35. By this, people will know that you're my disciples. He doesn't go on and say, well, it's because you've memorized so much scripture. Then they'll know you're for real. No, that's a good thing to do, but that's not it. It's not even... Because you speak in tongues or uh, exhort some other spiritual gift. No, those are all good things. But that's not, it's not the essence of how people will know that you're his disciples. Here's what he says. Here's how they'll know you're my disciples. In other words, here's how you'll know. There, others will know that you are a real follower of Jesus. If you have love, love one for another. Real followers of Jesus will love and serve their fellow Christians, period. Number four, he says we are to be tender-hearted towards one another. I want you to think about this. Think about the religiosity of the spiritual elites of the first century. We call them the Pharisees, right? We know them as the Pharisees. Were they kind towards other people? No. Their religiosity, their legalism made them calloused and hard-hearted towards those whom they did not deem as spiritual as them. And you know, that's what legalism in the church, that's what religiosity will bring. It will bring about calloused hearts towards one another. Are you with me? It'll harden your heart. It's so interesting. So many of the millennials that I try and witness to in this area, it's not that they don't go to church or have never been to church before. It's not that they don't know about God, but they're jaded, they're hurt because they grew up in some kind of legalistic church where they could never measure up to anybody else. 
And people are always looking down upon them, and they're, they're just done with it. They want nothing to do with the Lord because of that kind of an upbringing. It's tragic. Legalism will always harden your heart towards other people, but the gospel, it has the opposite effect. The true gospel, it humbles you, and it tenderizes your heart. Have you noticed that the closer you truly get to God, the more you tend to cry? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like the closer I am to God, the more I, I, I sense His presence, especially in church, gathered with the saints. I mean, I'm just moved to weep. And I know that's not a manly trait. You can take my man card from me. I don't think I even have it anyway. Just take it, right? <laughs> don't laugh. That's not funny. Um, I'm not ashamed of this because I want to emulate Jesus by being tender-hearted. I want to be moved by, by, by the sorrows of other people. I don't, want to, I don't want to be calloused when I'm listening to other people's trials and tribulations. We need to be tender-hearted. And you know what? The gospel, it does that. When we realize how much we've been forgiven of, it tends to make us tenderhearted towards other people. That's why we tell you in this church all the time, preach the gospel to yourself daily. The gospel's not just for unbelievers. It's for the believer as well. Number five, believers are to be humble towards one another. Now you must understand the in the first century Greco-Roman world that humility was not seen as a virtue. This was seen as weakness. So Peter's words here are kind of astonishing to these readers of the first century. Paul says the same thing essentially in Philippians 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count, listen to this, count others more significant than yourselves. Is that not a countercultural message? The message of the world, and even, frankly, in a lot of the church today, is life's about you. Jesus is here to make your dreams come, dreams come true. It's all about you, right? Well, that's not what the Bible says. He says you are to consider, actually, other people, their preferences more important than your own. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, so you can look to your own interests, but also to the interests of other people. Real followers of Jesus are not conceited, and they regard other believers more important even than themselves. This is a radical way to live in the 21st century, is it not? Jesus is our great example in all of these qualities. He was single-minded during his earthly ministry, one with the Father. He was sympathetic, truly caring about the needs of other people. He, was, he demonstrated brotherly love to his disciples. Jesus was incredibly tenderhearted during his earthly ministry. I mean, all, all the time we read this in the Scriptures, that Jesus moved with compassion he was just constantly moved with compassion. And he was the epitome of humility and meekness. Giving his own life so that we could be reconciled to the Father. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve. That's a humble, that's a humble God that we serve. Amen. 
Jesus demonstrated great humility and meekness. And friends, we need to emulate these virtues towards one another because people are watching us. And if we want to truly glorify God, we've got to have the right attitude towards other believers. But secondly, we've got to have the right answer. And Peter kind of broadens the scope here. We're not now just talking about our relationship with other Christians, but this is our relationship with anybody who would offend us. Let me ask you this morning, how do you respond when other people offend you? In the church, outside of the church, how do you respond? Verse 9 says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. Do you know that one of the things that confounds lost people is when they can't get under your skin? When people are against you, you know what they want? They want you to come down to their level. And it frustrates them when you have what the Bible would call a peace that surpasses all understanding. And they just can't get to you. They want you to retaliate so they can point their finger and say, see, he's not such a godly man after all. She's not such a godly woman after all. If you take this into context with what we've been studying throughout 1 Peter, you know that Peter knows that we as Christians are going to likely be mistreated. It's happening here in the first century to these first readers. They're being persecuted because of their faith. Peter's compelling them and us, don't return punch for punch. It's not an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. No, forgive And Peter here is just echoing Jesus' familiar words in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 38. You've heard that it was said, Jesus says, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But watch this. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. People are watching us and the way that we respond to hurt and to trouble. They're looking to see that we truly do have this peace even when people are against us. Does it not take an incredible amount of trust in the Lord to not take matters into our own hands, to not retaliate when people offend us? It takes an incredible amount, incredible amount of trust. But Peter goes even a step further. Not only are we to refrain from retaliation, but he says, you are to bless those who are against you. Next time somebody hurts your feelings, send them a gift card. See what happens. According to MacArthur's commentary, the term translated bless here is the word from which the English word eulogy is derived. Think about this. It means to praise or to speak well of other people. You know, during a a eulogy, 
if you've been to a memorial service, even to somebody, listen, I've been to some funerals, unfortunately, been to many of them in my life as a pastor. And we've, we've been to funerals where, frankly, the person in the casket is not really well liked. And yet during the eulogy, the speaker will find something positive to say about that man or a woman. You'll just see him kind of sitting there going, hmm. But eventually they come up with something, right? Something nice to say. That is the way that we are to treat those who persecute us, who offend us. We're to bless them. We're to speak well of them. And here's what I I believe this is saying as well. We should pray for their salvation. And you know what really helps me in this? It's this idea. I should never expect lost people to act like saved people. I should never expect lost people to act like saved people. Perhaps if I would had been in their shoes, if I would have had their upbringing, maybe if I would have been through the things that that other person had been through, maybe I would treat people exactly like they treat people. The Bible says if any of you think you're above falling, take heed lest you fall. If you don't act like that other person, it's only owing to the grace of God. I am who I am by the grace of God. Give other people a break. Don't, act, don't, don't expect them to act like saved people. And here's what's incredible. Peter says that when you bless those who are against you, when you treat them like this, when you pray for them, Peter says there's actually a blessing for you. How many want to live the blessed life? That's a real popular phrase today, right? You want to live the blessed life. Some of you don't, but most of you do. All right. I want to live the blessed life. Lord, you saw the hands go up. I'm just... When you treat others in a way that is God-glorifying, when you bless those who come against you, God said there's a blessing for you. That's the road. That's the pathway to the blessed life. I mentioned the heat or the air earlier, and I'm absolutely roasting. Anybody with me? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. What is the blessed life? What does it mean to have the blessed life? I don't think it's the same picture that we get from the secular world. Peter draws from Psalm 34, 12 through 14, and he writes this in verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. How many just want to love life and see good days? Amen? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Listen to me. The blessed life does not mean that trouble will never come your way. He's not talking about a life of just sheer luxury here. Peter is saying this. He's writing to people who are being persecuted, and it's about to get much worse under the emperor Nero. He knows they're about to face some incredible persecution. And he says, hey, you want to live the blessed life? Here's what you do. Here's what he means by the blessed life. It's learning to love life. It's the ability to love life and enjoy life and have good days even in the midst of trouble. 
That's what it is to have a blessed life. It's this consistency where my, my, the goodness of a day doesn't necessarily depend on circumstances. Because my contentment comes from Jesus Christ alone. You want the blessed life. He says, don't speak evil. Don't speak deceit. Turn from evil and pursue goodness. Hear me well. Bitterness and retaliation, deceit and evil speaking are not the ways to a good life. Some of you may think, oh, if I could just get back at this person for the hurt they've caused me, then I'd have a good life. But bitter, hateful people are miserable, cantankerous people. They are the most miserable people on the planet. The grumblers, the complainers. That's not what we're called to. You want the blessed life. You've got to walk in peace. Jesus Christ gave his life, think of this, for the very people who were plotting his death. He's blessing those who curse him. May we follow him in this. Real followers of Jesus, here it is, are quick to forgive. And they pray for God to bless those who are spitefully against them. So if we're going to point people to Jesus, number one, we must have the right attitudes towards other believers. Number two, we might have the right, must have the right answer. And number three, we must have the right aim in life. Have the right aim. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter's quoting here, Psalm 34 again, verses 15 and 16. And you know what he's saying? Don't miss this. It's not just that people are watching you. He talks about that in chapter 2, and that's what this, is a, this whole section is about. People are watching you, and we need to point them to Christ. But not only that, he says here, here that the Lord is watching you. The Lord is watching you. You might be able in some places to get away from video surveillance. You might be able to get out of the public eye and you might be able to sit alone in your bedroom and do whatever you want and nobody ever find out, but God sees you. God sees what no one else sees. We cannot evade the presence of our Lord. And so our aim as Christians is to please the Lord. It's not to please man, ultimately. It's not to please ourselves. It is to gain the applause of God that one day we may hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the motive beyond, behind all of what I've just said. When we truly come to Christ, watch this, life becomes simply about Jesus. I talked about this last week. This is what it means to be a Christian. Ultimately, this is the essence of Christianity. Jesus is your Lord. It means he's the boss. He's on the throne of your life, not you. And we tend to compartmentalize, don't we? And say, well, Lord, you can have Sunday, and if I'm super spiritual, Wednesday night. But I'm going to take the rest of the week. This, this, you know, maybe Monday evenings are for my family, but... 
this day is my day. We compartmentalize. Now, that's not Christianity. To be a real follower of Christ, to have saving faith, is to turn from sin and from your rebellious ways, from your own identity, and say, oh, I want my identity to be in Christ. I want my life to be hidden with him. That means 24-7, I'm committed to him. So before you make any decision, before you respond to hurt, before you decide what your week is going to look like, here's the question you should ask. How can my life in this situation point people to the glory of God? Friends, we are his image bearers as Christians. Man is created in the image of God. We, we are created in his image, men and women alike. But that image, because of sin, has been tainted. Yet Christ, through his, his, our redemption, has, he has given us a new chance to glorify God again by being that image bearer. And as we emulate Christ in these virtues, it's not so that people can see how good we are. The goal is that people might see how good God is. Jesus said it like this in John 12, 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And simply, this is what it means. You want to live it up in this life? Enjoy it, because this is all you get. But if you will lay down your life and say, hey, this life is about Jesus, you get life eternally. It's your choice. Whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Life, I said it last week, life, I don't I hate to break this to you, it's not about you. It is not about you. It's about Jesus. We're always concerned with our rights. Well, this person offended me and it's my right. To, oh, no, 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 no. You laid your rights down at the foot of the cross. Your life is about Jesus. What did Jesus do at the cross? Did he, when he could have called legions of angels, did he said, well, my right, my right. I'm the, I, listen, I'm God the Son. I'm not going to hang here. I'm King of kings and Lord of lords. No. He laid down his rights for the glory of the Father to reconcile us to the Father. And he hung there in humility even to death. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.